This is Judah Pollack, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? I am Judah Pollack. Uh, I'm an author. I'm a consultant. I'm a speaker. I do mostly work around leadership, self-awareness, and then human dynamics. So not only being aware of yourself, but being aware of how you're engaging with the group that you tend to work with. Okay, so now I'm just curious. Author, consultant, and speaker. Which one of those is is that the order that they come in in terms of a percentage of your day? Because I, looking at you from afar since the last time we did the... Uh, our last interview on the show, uh, I, I I don't know. I guess I always assumed like the consultant part came first, then the speaker, then the author. But it seems like you're always traveling all over the world, interacting with the army and all sorts of other people. So you know that's that's what it appeared from the outside looking in. You tell me. It's a great question, um, and it's a great question to get at uh, your own sense of identity, right? It's like what order do these things go in? Um, I'd have to say that right now there's it, it comes and goes in waves. So I think author came first because with the launch of the book, I've been very focused on the book and as myself thinking of myself as an author. Hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I just came off of a two-hour Zoom call with a consulting client and a large team. So they're happening simultaneously. So I, I believe for me, they kind of flow in and out. The The work of consulting will inform the things that I speak about and it'll also inform the things I'm interested in writing about. But then the things that I learn in the research for the writing inform the how I consult and the things that I speak about. So they're all kind of engaging with one another. So in many ways, it, they're different aspects of the same work. Gotcha. See, and I, you know, I ask for a very specific, not just to be a jerk about whether or not you got the order right. <laughs> I, I, I ask for a very specific reason because I'm, you know, I'm reading uh, the new book is The Net and the Butterfly. Actually, if you look at the cover, it's The Net and The, and then there's a picture of a butterfly. Uh, there's a big debate about that. Which I, I love, which I love, by the way, but whatever. My uh, six-year-old niece looks at it and goes, you should have written butterfly in tiny little letters along the edge of the wing. Oh, maybe. Like, Thank you for that. <laughs> or I would, I mean, I would have maybe even written it like uh, along like the, the, do butterflies have a spine? The thorax of, the, <laughs> of, of the, I don't know, whatever. Um, no, I mean, I like it because it was this, and now we're going off on a tangent, but it was Seth Godin and the Domino Project that first got me to realize that like, you know, there's absolutely no reason in 2017 to put any, any words 
on the cover because people are just going to look at the listing on Amazon and find out about the title, right? So you you still still have that, but you also do a great job of kind of still making it more creative, et cetera. That wasn't why I asked you the order question, though. So let me redeem myself here. The reason I ask is the book is all about um, breakthroughs, breakthrough thinking. I don't want to say the term eureka because I've always you know hated that term, as you know from my first book. Um, but just when those moments of realization happen, and it's funny because when I look at your body of work, I can put that in two different places. I can put that in the creative sort of writer space. I use creative as a noun here, even though I don't like using it as a noun. Um, because if we do use it as a noun, then the synonym immediately becomes barista. But um, <laughs> but then there's also sort of like I said, you've done a lot of work for as long as I've known you with the with the army, with high level. Um, uh, companies with special forces teams, with uh, Red Team University, with uh, all sorts of different stuff, with with IDEO's nonprofit, and these are all places that are. When we think about breakthroughs, we think more about sort of like problem solving. Now, arguably, you know, you and I know they sort of tap in the same areas of the brain, the same thinking process, etc. But I think pr- in practice, we often separate those two things as two totally different realms. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And uh, one of the things we're getting at in the book is that breakthroughs do not have to be world-changing, identity-shattering realizations. Breakthroughs come in all shapes and sizes. And I think that allowing ourselves to take credit for small breakthroughs is incredibly important. Uh, You can have a breakthrough figuring out that you are actually in love with your friend. You can have a breakthrough figuring out that you're repeating your relationship with your dad, with your boss. You can have a breakthrough figuring out that you should really come into the next team meeting and listen a lot more than you talk. All of these are breakthroughs in their own way. I think I would actually be really freaked out if I had the breakthrough that I was reliving the relationship with my dad, with my boss. But I actually, you would not, you would not <laughs> believe how often that actually is. Going well, I, I should say the 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 reason being that to some extent, you know, I'm now an academic and an author, so I have a dean. But I, the idea that I would first have a boss would be freaky. But yeah, um, <laughs> I could see that. And we won't. This is not a show about counseling, so we won't go too far down <laughs> that road. One of the things I love is right off the bat, the the book talks about that idea that there are different types of breakthroughs. You actually break it down into sort of like four. And most of us, I think, when we think about breakthrough, we just think about one of them. And then we don't value any of the other inklings of insights that are these sort of other three forms of breakthrough. Yes, the, the, we call it the eureka breakthrough. And that kind of is the dominant form that people think of where you just suddenly have an inspired moment and you realize something. Eureka, of course, coming from the stories of Archimedes, the, and Eureka meaning I've got it. So which, it's which, just by this, the way, probably never happened because probably never. You happened. don't run <laughs> naked into a king's chambers and live. It just it usually doesn't happen. It's a bad idea. <laughs> uh, but this I, this concept that you suddenly know the answer and it shows up fully formed. That is what people think of as a breakthrough. And it does happen. There's a wonderful story a friend of mine told me from NASA where uh, a scientist was driving home off the NASA campus and suddenly had the answer to a problem he had been working on, stopped his car, got out of the car, left it with the door open sitting in the middle of the road and ran back to the building and his office to complete the problem. And because NASA has a lot of very eccentric and creative people, nobody had a problem with it. They just drove around the car on their way home. And when the guy finished, he walked back to his car a couple hours later, got back in and continued on his way. Uh, 
So that sudden knowing does occur, and we're not trying to take away from that, but it is not the only form of having a breakthrough. There is something we call metaphorical breakthrough, and very often this happens in the form of dreams. And there are so many stories of people having a dream, probably the most famous being August Kukule, uh, the German chemist who figured out the shape of the benzene molecule, which was a ring. But the way he figured it out was he had a dream about a snake eating its own tail. And so that circular shape, he was able to translate into the realization that the benzene molecule, molecule was shaped like a circle. So it didn't come direct. It came in this metaphorical way. But it still had a huge impact on his thinking. And I think we sometimes don't give enough credit to those liminal states uh, in the same way that Salvador Dali would take a nap sitting in his chair holding a key in his hand. And he put a metal plate underneath on the floor so that when he fell asleep, he'd let go of the key. It would hit the metal plate and wake him up, and he would draw whatever was in his mind at that moment because he understood there was an incredible creative force in that in-between state. And he was taking advantage of it in the same way that people with metaphorical breakthroughs tend to have them coming out of their sleep. And then there's another type that we call the intuitive breakthrough, and that's when you tend to have a deep level of mastery inside of a system. You really know what's going on, and the breakthrough doesn't come in, in a eureka way where you suddenly know a thing. Instead, it comes as like a hunch. You have, you, ha you have an inkling that you should go in a certain direction and keep your eyes open and keep your e ears peeled. And you sort of, you head down that road and sure enough, stuff starts to come up and people say, well, how did you know? How did you know to read that book? How did you know to talk to that person? How did you know to, to go down that, that path of research? And the answer usually is I, I didn't know, but it seemed to feel right. And as I said, very often these sort of intuitive breakthroughs happen in areas where you have an incredible level of mastery. And we tell the story of Chuck Yeager who when he broke the sound barrier, wasn't particularly afraid. And up until then, as people got closer and closer to the sound barrier, the, the plane would get more and more difficult to fly, and it would shake, and the controls would freeze up. And for some reason, Jaeger was convinced that once he got even closer, so instead of 0.95 Mach, he got to 0.96, 0.97 Mach, the plane would actually get easier to fly. Now, there was no reason for him to believe this, and none of the scientists who were working on the plane believed this. But he was like, I think that's going to be the case. And Jaeger was famous for being just a natural flyer. He was a World War II ace at the age of 22. He just knew how to fly and had flown thousands and thousands of hours. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened when he broke the sound barrier. The plane got easier to fly, and he just leapt across. How did he know? We don't we, – we don't know how he knew, but he did. And that's, that's what happens when you, when you have mastery in a subject. You can make these intuitive insights to break through. And the last one we talk about is paradigm breakthrough. And that's the, that's the Einstein relativity style. And we warn everybody that you, you can't set out to have this kind of breakthrough. This is a, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's as much luck of timing as it is anything else. If you have it, thank you. That's awesome. You're going to change the world. And we... We hope it happens, but you can't set your goal as that because it can become all-encompassing and it's a very low chance of happening. So we really encourage people to engage in the other three breakthroughs. So is, 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 so when I was reading the book, is, is paradigm breakthrough really just sort of like a eureka but with higher stakes or, or how does that work? It, it, it's kind of a combination of all of them in some ways. Um, if, you take the, if you take the example of Einstein, so he'd been working on this problem of, 
light and time and simultaneity for about 10 years before he came up with his um, theory of relativity in 1905. So there was deep mastery, and there were lots of intuitive breakthroughs along the way, lots of ways that he looked to go, as well as lots of dead ends, of course. And then at the same time, he was constantly using metaphors. Those are his famous thought experiments to understand what he was thinking about. So imagining he was surfing on the edge of a light beam. And what would that look like? So he was constantly engaging in metaphorical insight to try and find his way there. And then the the last story of his sudden realization, that's more of a eureka insight, where he spends the whole day before with a good friend of his going over his theory. Finally, at the end of the day, he just throws his hands up in the air and says, you know what? I quit. I'm done. And he walks home. And he goes to sleep. Often sleep is a part of these stories. And he wakes up and he comes back to his friend and he says, I've got it. Thank you. And he goes back home. And now he's got the theory of relativity, and that was the paradigm breakthrough. So very often when you look at the process, it's it's a combination of all of them as you move to this huge moment. Hmm. But it's actually – that moment is actually the pointy end of a 10-year spear. Okay, so let's talk about this thing because you've mentioned it with Dali. You've mentioned it with uh, Einstein. It's sleep, right? And it's not necessarily the the falling asleep. It's actually that – I, at least here's here's my opinion. I looked at you know a lot of your writing on executive network versus deep world network mode network stuff that we were like scratching the surface of when I was researching the mist of creativity. I came from a straight psychology and neuroscience was starting to make discoveries, but not really diving deep in these areas. I I look at it like this, at least, and you tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like most of us this sleep thing happens because most of us throughout the day are so like attention going in a million different directions that we don't have, like we're not bored anymore. So there is no prompting apart from sleep that sort of re that deliberately activates that default mode network, which is critical to having these breakthroughs. Now this is Dave Burkus's version of Judah Pollock's work. So you tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I don't think you're wrong at all. I really, I really like the way you put that. Um, and it's true. We don't stop. Um, and now with our, with our phones, with our devices, even if there is some random opportunity to be bored, we can pick these up and be entertained or engaged in work and on task immediately, almost anywhere. And so it fundamentally stops our ability to access the default network, which turns around and is the network that enables us to have breakthroughs. So by always looking at our phones, by always answering an email, answering a text, going over uh, something from work, we are hindering our ability to have a breakthrough. And so that means that sleep has become this last bastion for the default network, where when we go off task, this network can actually turn on and start to put all these ideas together to create novel connections to hand us breakthroughs. Hmm. So, all right. So, so let's talk a little about what's going on um, in the brain. We 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 talked about the sleep thing. I don't think there's a couple people that are listening that are like, you guys keep using these terms and networks and mode and whatever. Like, <laughs> like I know what they are. Let's. I realize as we're talking about this that we should probably back up and, and probably cover a little bit of that, shall we? We shall. So, you actually have two networks in your brain that are working together to create breakthroughs. The first one you would not expect. It's your executive network. It's the part of your brain that makes you an adult. Um, from a, it's, you might call it your superego. It's the part of you that 
inhibits you socially so that you don't say the wrong thing. It's the part of you that stays on task and gets things done, picks up your mother at the airport on time, goes to the market, gets food, picks up your kids at school, makes sure that you get your reports in. It's, it's functional, it's linear, it's rational, it's goal-oriented. And there's this other network called your default network or your default mode network. And it's called that because when you're not doing those things, when you're not on task, your brain defaults to it. And this network is made up of about 10 different brain regions, all of which are very central to your entire brain. And they take in a massive amount of information. And they deal with things like your memory, your empathy, your sense of self, your error prediction into the future, your awareness of your environment and whether you should change your behavior. It takes in physical sensation, so movement, texture, taste, sound. Uh, it takes in a narrative of yourself. There, it's, there's a whole host of mechanisms involved in the default network. And what the default network is doing is it's constantly building a story of the world around you. And it's constantly making sense of the information you take in. The trick here is that so long as you're on task, so long as you've got the executive network firing, the default network is going to work at about half speed. It's just not going to be doing its all. You have to actually come off task Take a break, take a walk, daydream, take a nap. You have to slow down in order for the power in your brain to reroute to the default network. And once the power reroutes to the default network, it starts taking in all the information that you've been pulling in from the executive all day, and it starts mixing and matching it. And this, this mixing and matching, this novel connecting, that's where the breakthrough actually happens. So the interesting part is that you need the new information that the executive goes out and gets then you need to move away and have the downtime for the connection to be made. And here's where the scientists kind of have hit a wall. The, uh, not a wall, but we've hit the, the limit of what we know. The default network and the executive network actually have a conversation together about whether or not an idea is a breakthrough. Hmm. And Because there's a real question here, right? How does your brain know which ideas to toss into your consciousness and which not? Well, I think we're like, and I mean, no, how do you know if you've had a good idea? That's like, how do if, you know if you had a good idea? If we could figure that out, we could make billions for whatever company we're consulting <laughs> with, right? But the amazing thing is, is your brain and everyone's brain. I don't, even if you think of yourself as not creative, you are. You have the same. You have the same brain structure as Einstein. It's just a question of how well you're accessing it. And so your brain has figured out how to determine whether or not you've had a good idea. And your aha moments are your brain saying, "This is a good one." And bringing it to your level of awareness. Hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of magical because nobody's really figured out how your brain is doing it. So I, I want to go back and, and emphasize one thing too, which is, I mean, there's, there's two things I, I feel like we're, we fall into one of two errors in this process that you just outlined. I feel like a lot of times the, the first is that, again, that, that starve for attention realization that we're never actually accessing the default mode network. Like we often, especially in, in companies and on teams, because we often just sort of like plow through, right? We know we've got a problem and we don't even, we, we don't even really research to understand if we're asking the right question. We just like grab a marker, head to the whiteboard and start doing what we call brainstorming, but I, that Alex Osborne would be shocked to know that we even called it that. But then the other can be like, I feel like a lot of people, I don't know, maybe spend too much time in the default neural network and don't realize that like you, you need that preparation, that attention, all of the things that the executive network brings. There's a process here, not really just one or the other. Yes. And we call it mode switching. 
that mm. you're switching between the executive and the default networks. And it's the switching back and forth that is super important here. There's a third network called the salience network that's in charge of the switching, but we decided to not get into that because that would just muddy the waters for everybody. And in terms of your day-to-day life and your doing, you don't need to, to know about it. But it's the switching where the magic happens. And one of the interesting things that we notice in a lot of the stories that we both researched and were told by modern-day innovators is that once the default network delivers a breakthrough, there's a massive amount of time after the fact where the executive network is making sense of it and figuring out how to implement it. So the idea that a breakthrough is just a magical thing that happens out of the blue is a very damaging myth because there's a tremendous amount of our focused attention that goes into making a breakthrough happen, both before the moment of aha and then after the moment of aha. Einstein may have come to his friend after a night of sleep and said, I've got it, but he spent six weeks after that writing up the theory, writing up the paper, making sense of it. And well, that part gets left out a lot. Oh, yeah. No, I mean the same with you know Isaac Newton and the, the apple, right, which, again, probably didn't happen. But even if he did, it's not, like, it's not like he got pegged in the head by a piece of fruit that was carrying the formula. He just sort of had that, that inkling of a breakthrough and still had a ton of work afterwards to do it. And mind you, in all of these cases, a ton of work beforehand, too. It's not just this, this matter of you know, uh, praying to the muse and suddenly it arrives. There's a lot of work on either end of most breakthroughs. Yes, and, and, and the mistake a lot of people make, as you said, comes on overemphasizing one side or the other. So I feel like that often we fall out of practice for how to do this switching. So how, what are some of the ways that we could get better at getting more used to this? First of all, even knowing when we're in what mode network, but then also practicing being able to switch and move back and forth. So the... Some of the best things we have found are ways where you kind of play a trick on your executive network. And what we mean by that is is your executive network likes to have a goal, right? It's like for anybody who has little kids, you know that sometimes you're just like, you just tell them, like, okay, you're going to run to the fence. And, right? You just made that up. You just picked the fence, but they're off. They're like, all right, I got something to do. I'm going to run to the fence. Right? And then you just tell it when they come back, you're like, you're going to run to the fence again. You're just trying to exhaust them so they go to sleep. But your executive network is kind of the same way. If you give it something to do, it will do it and it will quiet down. And what you're trying to find is you're trying to find goals that are easy, that are kind of muscle memory goals. But it makes the executive go quiet so that the default network can rev up and start coming up with novel ideas. So ways to, And this is why you have breakthroughs in the shower. Because showering is just enough of a goal. You got to wash yourself, get clean, but you don't have to think about it. You've done this so many times. It's easy, and it's a it's a great space to allow your default network to start mixing and matching ideas. This and is, from all, there, oh, sorry for those of you that aren't uh, you know prone to taking too many showers. You also talked about like folding the laundry and other repetitive tasks here, right? Because they all do the same thing. Folding the laundry, same way. You've done it a thousand times. It's not difficult for you to do. You can kind of do it in your sleep. Uh, for some people, cooking. For some people, playing an instrument. Uh, walking is a huge one because you can say, I'm going to walk for an hour. I'm going to walk to the store. You can give yourself a goal, which will quiet your executive and allow your default network to start engaging at higher capacity, pulling more energy in. 
So anything that you know how to do that's easy for you, anything that can kind of put you into a bit of a state of flow, these are the places where you're going to access the default network. And there are other ways to do it that we really enjoy because they pop new ideas into your head, which are just change your perspective. Uh, one thing we've told people to do, and they look at us like we're crazy, but we're like, just go sit on the floor. Sit on the floor in your house. Sit on the floor in your office. It doesn't matter. But And just look around. It's a brand new perspective. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the way you look at the world. And while your executive is kind of taking it in, your default network, network is going to take in new information, which allows it to create novel connections. So grand vistas are really wonderful. If you can get to the top of a hill in your town or the top of a skyscraper and just look out and just gaze, this also is a wonderful way to access this network, the default network, and sort of bring it to life. Hmm. So, you know, it's funny when I when we moved into our new house that we currently live in now, it took us several weeks to get the uh, the furniture that we ordered. I did a lot of floor sitting at that point. And it's interesting because that was also when I was starting to work on my uh, my next book. So I unknowingly made my book probably the most creative one that that I could have. Um, so in terms of, there's also, if I remember this from the book, there were also a lot of different exercises that were perspective, not physical perspective, like sitting on the floor, but just like, I mean, very Einsteinian, if that's a term, like looking at gravity, for example, the opposite way, or just kind of trying to take something and think about what it would happen if the opposite of that make that makes that thing exist was true. And it's all now I'm understanding it's all sort of this perspective taking type exercises. Yes, uh, we like to call them the thought experiments, but to to really push your brain to look at things fundamentally differently, because in the end, that's what a breakthrough is. It's looking at something in a fundamentally new way, and so it's good to practice that. So in the book, we ask the question, imagine that gravity stops working at 10 p.m. and starts working again at 7 a.m. What does the world look like? What does society look like? How has our culture evolved in a different way? How do we build our homes in a different way? How do we uh, throw parties in a different way? What kind of weddings do people have late at night? How are children strapped into bed? How do teenagers get themselves into trouble and rebel in that kind of a world? And it, it's not so much about coming up with great ideas, but the practice of thinking about that is the same mechanism you'll use to have a breakthrough about something at work or a breakthrough about something in your business or a breakthrough about something in your personal life. So it's kind of like lifting weights to get strong. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking of themselves as creative couch potatoes. They're like, I'm just, I'm just not creative. I just don't do that. And that is equivalent to sitting on the couch for two years and then somebody asks you to do 10 push-ups and you can't. And you say, I guess I'm just weak now. I'm a weak person. And we all know that's not true. You're just out of shape and you need to practice. And the same is true with being creative. People like to say, I am not creative. And that is not true. You just are out of practice. You're out of shape. And so a lot of these are different mechanisms to help you get into shape, to start being more creative. So another question we ask is imagine you're going to live to 130. The whole, everybody does. You live to 130 and you're very healthy. How does that change the way we live our lives? How does that change our conception of marriage? Where marriage was you know, conceived as a contract between two people for anywhere from 20 to 40 years, usually, when it was yeah, how long people were going to live. Now, all of a sudden, you're looking at getting married for 90 years. Is that viable? Is that going to work? Now, you're going to be great, great grandparents. How does that look? How do you save enough money? Or do you keep working much longer? Or do you, is it expected you're going to have a second and third career in your life? Is it expected you're going to have a second and third marriage in your life? 
Is your first marriage all about just somebody you have fun with? Is your second marriage about somebody you have children with? And your third marriage is about somebody who you start to discover yourself with. You grow your own soul. How does how do we shift how we behave in the world if we all live to 130 and are fairly healthy? Hmm. And these questions, it's again, it's not about the actual answers you come up with, but the practice itself is going to be excellent practice for breakthrough thinking. Well, I mean, of course, it's not about the answers. Those are all super easy to answer questions. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, so I guess here's here's my question. So I have, uh, for for those long-term listeners to, to our podcast, you'll recall um, Judah and I got the chance to talk a number of years ago. Uh, with the chaos imperative, the first book, and I'm wondering, you you sc- sort of scratched the surface in that one about these different uh, modes, the executive network, the default mode network, etc. You've been spending probably three years sort of learning more. I'm wondering what's changed, kind of in you and in your practice of writing or consulting or speaking as you've become more aware of this. I mean, it's sort of like the exercises are great, but I also kind of want to know how the master uses them, you know. <laughs> I will. I'll, I'll take your 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 wonderful compliment of the master with, but I will throw a grain of salt to everybody else. <laughs> so I'm, about to, <laughs> so I'm about to speak, although it, it does feel good. So thank you. Um, I have found that I have gained a lot more confidence in creating those spaces for my clients, um, or even in my talks. Um, there are some talks where I will end them with kind of a five minute guided meditation um the point being to actually let people take in what they just heard so i'm expecting most people to space out on me within 30 seconds and i'll be kind of speaking in a very what they call tone and drone way which is just a very soft way of speaking very melodic so that you you kind of just my tone is there sort of as a guide but you're not really paying attention to what I'm saying. You're thinking about what caught you in the talk, what caught you in the speech, what what kind of spoke to you. And then you start making connections in this space. So kind of dropping – I'm acting as the goal for the executive network to pay attention to and then just space out on so the default network can come up and start mixing and matching from all this new information you've taken in. And the same happens when consulting with either with individual clients and executives or with teams where creating spaces in the middle where nothing happens, creating spaces for quiet reflection, creating spaces for people to draw what they're thinking. One of the things that we discovered in interviewing so many of these innovative people is that so many of them use pictures as they start thinking about what they're doing. And when you draw something, you're using a fundamentally different part of your brain than when you're trying to write about it and use language. And so the thinking in pictures is an incredibly powerful tool that I've started to integrate into the work and getting teams to start thinking in terms of pictures, communicating with one another in terms of pictures. Even the process of trying to interpret another person's picture gives you, the interpreter, a much deeper sense of where that person is coming from, and it gives you a deeper empathy for them because you're actually having to get into their mindset. And so the use of pictures has also been a huge part of this. And then, of course, the just the stepping into the emergent elements of the default network. So it's not something you can control. You can set conditions for the default network to function and have, have higher output, but you can't control how it's going to happen. And so very often when I'm working with clients, I like to set things up where a question will be put forth um, and people can answer anonymously through different structures. And through that anonymity, interesting things come out that nobody was expecting 
And then you give them quiet in order to, to sort of think about what just came out, what just happened, what did that person just say, and then you prime them. So maybe before they even start talking again, I might show them a picture of a hot air balloon, which at first seems absurd. It seems ridiculous. But I've, by putting the hot air balloon into the default network's system, there's a sense of spaciousness. There's a sense of possibility. There's a sense of peace and calm. There's a sense of floating. And that changes the way people start to think. It changes the memories they pull up and draw from. It changes the new information they access. And then from there, let the conversation begin again. And it's a completely different conversation than it would have been if we had just jumped right in. We have a goal. Let's get to it. Yeah, I like it. That's really, really interesting. And and we can we'll go with master sensei, whatever. I mean, whatever term you wanna you wanna use, because whether you have mastered it or not, there is a ton to learn. And to those who have been listening for the last half hour about it, I recommend you start with the net and the. No, I'm kidding. The net and the butterfly, <laughs> the art and practice uh, of breakthrough thinking. Judah, uh, you know what's coming next. I want to switch and ask you a couple questions. I want to see if your answers have changed. Really. Um, so questions we ask all guests. The first being. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received, I would say, I'm so curious because I don't remember my earlier answers, so I'm curious if they have changed. Um, the best advice I've ever received is that, this is going to sound terrible, but um, people are not staring at your imperfection. Hmm. And what I what I came to understand that meant was there are, I was getting stopped from being present and really being able to listen and notice what was going on around me because I'd be focused on, I, I don't look right or, um, oh man, I've got, a, I've got a pimple on my chin or, oh man, um, these glasses are wrong for me or whatever it was. And I was convinced that's what everybody else was paying attention to about me. And I got caught in this loop. And when somebody explained that to me, I suddenly was free to devote all this new mental energy to how's everybody in the room doing? What's it, what are they actually saying? What are the dynamics here? I could, it's like, it's like a blindfold was taken off and I could see so much more. It was really impactful. I like it. What's an ideal work day look like for you? An ideal work day. Um, wake up with a fantastic idea and have no problem writing it down and getting it into a nice structure uh, setting that aside, that was easy. That was great. Uh, have some tea and eat. Talk to a couple of clients who are having a difficult time, but they listen to everything I say. They totally get it, and they they take the advice and they go for it, and it works. And they they tell me how great that was, and I say no problem. That was I'm glad to have helped you with that. Uh, and then I get a call from a new client who's like, you know, oh, so-and-so told me about you and I, I totally want you to come in. Uh, I believe you're great. Just let, let's just get, let's go and let's get going immediately. Um, followed by some kind of downtime, uh, whether it's riding my bike, taking a walk, going to the market and shopping, uh, or, or lying down and, and taking a nap or reading a little something that, that has nothing to do with work. <laughs> which would be amazing, uh, preferably not getting caught in the, the political maelstrom either, so it stresses me out, but rather just something that I'm just interested in. Uh, and then hopefully coming down, just hanging out with my wife, just sort of taking it easy, listening to her and what her day is about getting out of my own head. 
That's a pretty solid day. I, w- I mean, if I, I wish I had that, I've, I would be incredibly profitable, number one, based on what you've described. But yeah, I, l- I like it. Um, that day that day has actually never happened. Well, but. no, no, no. That's why we ask ideal. That's why we ask gotcha, ideal. Gotcha. Uh, what are you reading right now? Oi. Um, I'm in the middle of a number of things. Uh, Team of Teams by uh, General McChrystal. Oh, that's a great one. Um, there's another book called, hang on, I have it right here, Negotiating the Non-Negotia- Non-Negotiable. How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts by Daniel Shapiro, which is also just a fantastic book all about what goes on in a conflict and what goes on internally for people in conflicts and what's really getting at the root of it and how do you engage in that conflict. What I like about the negotiation aspect is almost all human interactions in some way, shape, or form are a negotiation. Um, and again, for those of you who have little kids, you know, they are the great negotiators of the universe. Everything's up for negotiation. And so I found this has been a very powerful book in that way uh, to to understand what's actually at the root and the heart of this negotiating. Um, mm-hmm. And then another another book I'm in the middle of, it's super short. It's called He by Robert A. Johnson. And it uses the Fisher King Holy Grail myth to understand masculine psychology Um I highly recommend it for everyone out there and everybody who's frustrated with millennials. Um, it does an amazing job of describing uh, the different stages of life. Hmm. What do you believe that most people don't? <laughs> uh, I, I believe everyone is creative. That's that's um, not most people do not. I, I'm agreeing yes. with you there. I, 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 after doing the research and talking to everybody and then using these tools with many people and teams, um, I've had so many people come up to me and tell me I, I didn't think I was creative and I've, I, I've realized I am. Uh, there are so many internal blockers uh, to what is a very natural process. And there are so many blockers to a creative engine, a, a neural engine that we all possess uh, that people have been fooled into believing they they are not creative, but in fact, everybody's actually highly creative. And I believe that everybody has a deep desire to access that part of themselves. Hmm. All right, final question. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. You have worked with leaders from the private sector, from public sector, from military, all, all across the board. What makes someone a leader? Ah, that's a good question. That's why um, we save it to the end. Yeah, so I, I feel like there's two pieces to that. One is on the outside, which is that people follow you. <laughs> um, <laughs> that kind of, that kind of. Way, way to simplify. That's up. that's the executive network answer. Yeah, way exactly, to simplify. Exactly. People follow you. You are you are therefore you are a leader. And but what I mean by that also is that just because you have the title and just because you've been given the responsibility doesn't actually make you a leader. Um, if people have to do what you say, it's not by choice. If people don't necessarily have faith in you, believe in you, that that's not really being a leader, being a leader. And as we all know, there are people who don't have the title, who aren't given the responsibility technically, and yet everybody looks to them as the leader. Hmm. So being a leader really is about people, people believing in you, people seeing you that way, people trusting you and following you. Uh, but on the inside, being a leader is all about having being centered enough in yourself that you can listen to others, 
being centered enough in yourself that you can still learn, that you don't view learning as meaning you're not prepared to be a leader, but rather you look at learning as an essential part of being a leader, that you don't look at being a, being a leader as telling people what to do, but rather as listening to them to understand where they're coming from and what they need and supporting them. It's, it's, an, it's being centered enough to understand that you are in service to the people you're leading, that it's not about building you up. It's about you supporting what's around you. And I think that mindset is what truly makes you a leader. Hmm. I like it. I like it a lot. Judah Pollock, the book again, The Net and the Butterfly, The Art and Practice of Breakthrough Thinking. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you so much, David. It's always wonderful to talk to you. I so appreciate it.